0: This summer we have been uh, doing a series on the seven deadly sins. They are categories of uh, Christian moral theology. They are categories as we have set up through the ages that uh, help us to think through th- the roots of our sin. And the, uh, those who have taught these in the past have talked about the way that every sin that you and I struggle with or can commit can be found underneath one of these different heads, you know, and so far we've talked about things like pride and anger, and uh, as I look at these last three weeks, we've saved the, the hardest for last. Um, this morning we're going to talk about lust, next week we're going to talk about gluttony, and the week after that we're going to talk about greed. So these are the hardest, these three overlap a great deal, they're all sins that, that have to do with, uh, in, in some ways it can be too much of a good thing as often or not, uh, and they all do overlap in, in, in different ways. That uh, well, We're going we're to gonna kind of tease them out, I think, and touch on different ones, but it is, it is challenging to get, move into, I think, talking about these, which uh, we're not comfortable talking about them because they hit close to home. And I know as I write these sermons, even the ones that have gone before, this has been a really good series for me and for my heart. I hope it has been for yours. Uh, but even as I write these, they're very convicting, but in the best sense of that word. Uh, that God brings us, I think, deeper and deeper into a love for Him and a desire to be like Him. So we come this morning to this text, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Uh, as we begin to look at this first, I want us to notice that in verse 20, He, ta- he says this to the, to the disciples, he's, and to those who are listening, the Pharisees and the crowd that is gathered. And he says that, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a powerful saying and a difficult one. It's a bomb that he drops on on his disciples and the people who are seeking to follow him because when they hear those words, the most righteous people they know, like the most moral people, the most religious people they know are the Pharisees. And when Jesus says your righteousness must exceed their righteousness or you will never see the kingdom of heaven, it's a staggering blow. What do you mean by that? And what he does in the rest of it, I say that because you know you get the anger passage and the lust passage, divorce and oaths and retaliation and the loving of your enemies and every one of those begins with the statement, you've heard that it was said, that is, Out of the Old Testament and by the Pharisees, their understanding interpretation of it, you've you've heard that it was said, you know, don't commit murder, but I'm going to tell you, your righteousness must be an inside out righteousness. You've heard that it was said, you've seen it focused on the outward things that you do, but Jesus says, Unless your righteousness penetrates to your heart and deals with your anger and your lust and the issues behind divorce and the oaths that we take and the kind of retaliation that that infects our hearts and the love that we have. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, be nice to those who are nice to you, but hate your enemy. Jesus says it must penetrate. It must be an inside out, a heart righteousness, an inner purity that flows into a life of obedience and righteousness. You can't can't manage your life into obedience and righteousness. He says, you must have a heart of righteousness that flows into a life of righteousness. Outwardly moral lives, where we have inwardly filthy hearts, is unacceptable and is not a true righteousness when we're full of greed and anger and lust and pride and deception, as the Pharisees were. And this is what Jesus had against them. In other words, the Pharisees were church-going people. They were devoted religiously, and they were morally upright. And they had arranged the furniture outwardly to look good. But Jesus' complaint to them again and again and again is that they had no inner purity. No, inner overarching love for God and a desire to please and to serve Him. Hear the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than for the whole body to go into hell. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we have gathered this morning to sit under your word, to hear you speak to us, Lord Jesus, even as you spoke these words thousands of years ago to your people, by the Spirit would you speak them anew and afresh to us today. That we might have ears to hear and eyes to see. You would call us back to our first love. That you would have our hearts. You would have us. For in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. First, we'll define out that lust isn't necessarily a bad thing. Lust isn't necessarily a bad thing. As the Bible uses it, as the biblical word lust, epithumia, as the Greek word is used, it's used of any strong desire, and it can be good or bad. Two places, just real quickly, that it's used in a positive sense. You know the passage in Philippians where Paul says that he, that he strongly desires to depart and be with Christ. It's the same word that's used here and in other places negatively, the epithumia, that, that word lust. Paul lusted to depart and to be with Christ. He strongly desired it. In Galatians, where it tells us that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and that's a bad thing. It tells us immediately that the flesh that the spirit lusts right back. That it, it, it strongly desires contrary to the flesh. And so it is this, this overarching desire, passion, you know, pushing desire. And so C.S. Lewis famously said, it's not that our desires, it's not that God finds our desires too strong. It's not that our desires are too much. God wants us to have very, very strong, passionate desires. The problem is that they are too weak for the right things. We have strong desires. They just show themselves in the wrong places. And where we should be passionate about reaching a world for Christ, passionate about Caring for orphans and widows, passionate for, for feeding the hungry, passionate for caring for one another and pouring our lives out, passionate about laying our lives down for one another even as Christ laid down his life for us, passionate of loving one another even as Christ has loved us, passionate to live out those things, the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness and the, the life of Christ in us where, where there should be epithumia, there should be a lusting passion, a strong desire to do these things. Our passion is siphoned off. Reminded me of that when I was watching the World Cup stuff. I don't watch very much soccer, but then you watch World Cup, right? I don't watch very you know, much baseball, but I'll often watch the World Series. But as I watch you know, the World Cup, and there's all these, there's an entire, when the Americans were playing, the stadium was you know, half full of Americans who would spend thousands of dollars and weeks of vacation and then strip almost naked and paint their bodies. Where is our, is our lust you know for the things of god and that is the you know we see oh it's out there and we have it don't mind me we have it it is just siphoned off in a thousand directions it's not that our desires are too strong we don't desire the right things we're not saturated with the purposes and the kingdom issues of god in the scripture where they own us In our hearts, and here's the issue, we live outwardly Christian and and organized religious lives while inwardly Jesus is coming after the soul and the heart. Lust is sinful when we strongly desire the wrong thing or with the wrong motive, a right thing with the wrong motive, or when it's excessive in its degree, we want it too much, we want good things too much, I want a spouse too much, I want a certain kind of a spouse too much, I want, you know, a certain kind of attention, I want a certain kind of appreciation, I want a certain kind of whatever it is, anything that we want too much, or with the wrong motive, it can be, we lust, which is why we talk about lusting for power, you know, is another way we use that word, and we see that it is for more than just sexual issues and and impurity that way, but we can lust for power. And that can be a good thing. I might lust after, strongly desire a seat in Congress because I have a passion for justice, biblical justice, and I want to see justice done. And so that would be a fine use of it. But most of us who would lust for power desire the respect and desire the fear and desire the control and desire all kinds of things, wealth sometimes, that come with power. We lust for it for all the wrong reasons, the wrong motives, or the wrong degree. In the biblical, in in the Bible as well in culture, the word is often narrowed down and its usage is often narrowed into and used for very strong sexual desire. That happens biblically and it happens the way we use it. When we use the word lust, we very rarely use it in reference to power or anything else. It almost always means, right, that. And I sent out a warning this week, didn't I, in the email. I don't know if you read your, your e-blast. In this end, it does involve both the inappropriate object, the wrong motive, and an excessive desire. It's, it, is, it is misplaced in every way. Piper says, he defines it, it's here in your bulletin, under the first point. Piper defines lust is a sexual desire that dishonors the object and disregards God. I like that definition. It dishonors the object, and it disregards God. The one thing I'm missing in there that we're going to touch on significantly is in doing both of those things, it defiles the soul. It dishonors the person, it, it disregards God, but it also defiles the soul. So the huge problem in our culture, though, is it doesn't see anything wrong with it. Our culture doesn't see anything wrong with it. In fact, our culture works hard to cultivate it. To to create it and to feed it, the entire advertising industry. We, as we talked about envy, you know, what part of that envy can create lust and to desire things. And you can't go anywhere without creating lust in general and a sexual desire in particular. As you turn on your TV or buy, walk past any magazine stand, any form of communication out there, mass communication out there in our culture is saturated with it, trying to create it and feed it. Because it's big money, it's industry. Many feel, though, that it is harmless. And I would say this, in our culture, it affects both men and women. Often when we think of this, we think of men. And let me just very quickly say that, it, that it's both, men are more, are more visually oriented. And so a lot of the material that is aimed at men is visual, picture stuff. Because that's the way men are wired, and that's what makes us move in that direction, where for women, they are less visually oriented as they are story oriented, or they desire a certain kind of a man, or a certain kind of an experience. And so, you know, so where the uh, romance novel industry thrives, who buys them, right? You know, and there's the old chick flick, you know, where a guy may want to watch a movie where there's visual stuff, the chick flick, why? Because it appeals to something. It, it, want, it makes us desire something a, a better man, a man like that, a man who would treat me like that, a romantic situation. It creates it creates discontent with what we have and a desire for something better or different. It's the same with men and women, but for men, it's very physical. For women, it's very emotional. Why? Because that's just the way we're wired. But let's not be deceived. The industry is playing us both, and we're both buying it. Many feel it's harmless. It's a victimless crime. It doesn't hurt anyone. What if I read that? Or what if I look at that? You know, there's nothing wrong with looking. I've heard that. Nothing wrong with looking. Jesus begs to differ. You put yourself at odds with Jesus, with that kind of thinking, right? Jesus says that's not how he thinks about it. He He says lust, that looking in the way that we're talking about, betrays relationships. It defiles the soul, and it separates us from God. That's what he's saying in this text. It betrays relationships, it defiles the soul, and it separates us from God. In verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said you shouldn't commit adultery. It's like everybody knows that. Right? That's common knowledge. We all know the Big Ten. You all know the thou shalt not. You all know that it's in there. And he says we shouldn't do this. Clearly, God has drawn a line. We shouldn't be unfaithful to our spouse. Because adultery breaks the marriage covenant. It breaks faith with our spouse also breaks faith with God, right? It betrays relationship because it breaks faith with our spouse, and we know that it breaks the covenant because it's one of the few reasons, one of the couple reasons and that, that allows for divorce. It betrays relationship and it breaks covenant, right? But it also betrays relationship, breaks faith with God. In the same act. How do we know that? Well, one of the clearest ways is in David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. When David, after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm 51 after being confronted in his sin and brought to repentance. And he writes that. One of the first thing he says early in the psalm is against you alone, O God, have I sinned. He betrayed somebody else's marriage. He betrayed his own marriage and he ended up covering it up with murder. And as he has damaged all of these people and the people looking on and the marriages and the relationships and the families. And in the center of it, he is saying, it is you I have betrayed, oh God. It is you I have broken faith with. It is you I have broken covenant with. But then in verse 28, Jesus says in verse 27, everybody knows, you've heard that it was said about adultery. That's one of the big ten. In verse 28, though, Jesus drops an atomic bomb. Right? And it really is an atomic bomb. Both to them then, and we've heard it so much we don't feel it this way. But it's, it's an A-bomb. It is, it's massive. In verse 28 says, but I tell you, I'm going to say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. In his heart. Jesus says, let me make something crystal clear. Let me tell you something you need to understand. Absolutely. Adultery exists in the heart. In the form of lust. Before anything actually happens. And you have to know that that it always does. And you know you are in danger. And you know that you're you're moving in the wrong direction if it exists in your heart. And you may say, well, again, there's nothing wrong with looking. There's nothing wrong. Jesus begs to differ. And it always exists in the heart before it exists actually anywhere. But not only that, Jesus says this, adultery exists in the heart in the form of lust, whether something actually or ever happens anyway. And so he backs it up and says, there is something wrong with just looking in that respect. And I'm going to start drawing the lines of, There is something wrong with it. He says adultery exists in the heart in the form of lust whether something ever happens or not. Inappropriate desires in our hearts. Our lusts, sexual or not, for power, for attention, for whatever it is that begins to be a driving force in our lives. Defile us. Our hearts. In Matthew 23, it's here in your bulletin under the first point. Jesus says this later in the book of Matthew. He says, Whoa. Remember, we've hit a woe before. Jesus doesn't say a lot of woes. You should listen to His woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you religious types, you church-going types, right, you you know, of the day. You know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Why? Because you've been cleaning the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. The inside must be clean. The inside must belong to God. It is in the heart that we set apart Christ as Lord. It is here where true religion abides or doesn't. Now, it must flow out. It's not to say that out there doesn't matter. And then the reverse thing is to say, well, if it abides here, it doesn't matter what's out there. And that's not true either. But it must abide in both places, and it's inside out. It starts inside. We must set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We must love Him here, serve Him here, worship Him here, seek to be as He is here. And then let it flow into our lives in the way we live. Woe to those who keep the letter of the law, who organize the moral furniture of their lives but are not clean, that are not pure. And he says it's hypocrisy. The cup is not clean if the inside is not clean. Just like the tree is not good. right? He says, you know, the good tree can't bear bad fruit, bad tree can't bear good fruit. Make the tree good and it will bear good fruit. Make the inside of the cup clean and it is truly clean. It is out of the heart that all this stuff comes. So he goes for the core of the tree, make the tree good, and all of its fruit will be good. The cup is not clean if the inside is not clean. The life is not pure if the inside is not pure. God looks at the heart. We look at the outside and obsess over rearranging the furniture. And so a clean heart and a right spirit. See, so much of what we call repentance, and I know it in my own life, is... We wrestle with sin and God calls us to repentance and so much of what we call repentance tends to be shallow and ultimately hypocritical. Why? Because we make grand efforts to manage our behaviors while our hearts are still full of impurity. We focus on efforts to change and to rearrange our outward behavior and to get control when the true need is for a clean heart. A heart after God's own heart. So when David commits adultery and he knows his fundamental problem is his relationship with God, and as you read that prayer and as it goes forward, not only is it against you alone, if I sinned, oh God, what I need is a right heart with you. And so he prays, God, give me, create in me a clean heart. I'll tell you, one of the great needs for the church of Jesus Christ in our day is a clean heart, a pure heart. Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me, right? A right spirit, one that lusts after the right things, right? The things of God, the character of God, the kingdom of God, the purposes of God, the mission of God, right? A heart that belongs to him. And so the only true purity is a purity of heart, and the only true holiness is a holiness of heart, which is why in 1 Peter 3.15, there under your second point, Peter does say, it is in your hearts that you must honor Christ as Lord and as holy. It is there that it must be done before anywhere else. It must flow everywhere else, but it must be done there first, foremost. If we don't have it here, what Jesus is saying is, we don't have it. This is a hard saying, Jesus. (laughs) This is a hard saying. If we don't have it here, we don't have it. James chapter 4, verse 8, he says then, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So how do we do that? How do we draw near to God? And he says, well, let's do two things. Cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see the two the two packages? Wash your hands, oh sinners. See, the Jews were all about washing their hands, you know, washing the cup, you know. The Pharisees get mad at Jesus. Why don't your disciples wash their hands? Right? They're very concerned about such things. Washing the outside is a big deal to them. In fact, it's the deal. Organizing and, and, and washing the outside tended to be their whole religious life. But Jesus comes along and says, excuse me, but that's, of it, you know, don't fail to wash your hands, don't fail to to change the moral furniture of your life, so to speak, but he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded, which is just another way of saying hypocrite, you know, purify your heart, that who you are there is who you are everywhere. That it must go through and through, and I use that benediction, one of the reasons I like it, and I use it so often is I do believe it said you know that God himself would would sanctify us through and through that we wouldn't be like plastic fruit that you find on the table that it looks good it's got the right colors to it if you walked by it, you might take it for the real thing, in fact, the best some of them you might pick it up and contemplate biting it. you know it looks good, but the reality is it's hollow there's no real Goodness deep down inside. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. Go deep with God. Get real with God. Is your heart his? Right? Do you love him and serve him? And right, are these things as he set apart as Lord here when we contemplate what it is that we lust after and pour our lives out into? And again, I want to make it broader and want us to see. That our culture pulls at your passion all over the place. You're giving it away. You're pouring it out because we all have it. she says, is it at the World Cup we're painting our bodies? Or is it somewhere else that we are painting our bodies, in a sense, for Jesus? Right? That we are really owned. Lust fills a, fills a spiritual vacuum. I really believe that it is simply a misplaced desire. That's what it really comes down to. It's a misplaced desire. It's not that we shouldn't have it it's just that we need to place it in the right places. Lust is idolatry it's, it's a desire that should belong to the creator that we've lavished on stuff houses lifestyles people and etc 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 we've just lavished that which belongs to the creator it's, you know listen to Romans 1 it's there in your bio, uh, your outline under the Second point, Romans 1. Listen, is, he is saying this is for, for this reason the wrath of God is being revealed against mankind. And then listen to him talk about what is fundamentally and deeply going on. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for stuff, for people, images resembling mortal man. Therefore, God gave them up to what? The lusts of their hearts to impurity. You desire all the wrong things. So he gives them up in their hearts. He says the, the, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they start to worship and serve and to give their passion to the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Instead of lusting after God and the things of God, we pour our lives and our, our resources, ourselves, our time and our resources and our hearts and our inner self we pour it out to all kinds of stuff we're so fragmented and right here there ought to be the worship of a living god the presence of christ and the power of his spirit shaping the way i think and the way that i live and and so the way i use all of those things psalm 42 so you say instead of lusting after god you're like what does that look like i think the psalmist got it psalm 42 there in your bulletin as the deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you oh my god my friends what would it look like what would it look like if that described where you could say that every morning with passion with truth where the god who sees our hearts sees that it's true you, O God, like the deer pants for the water, like satisfying after a a deer that runs and runs and runs and exerts itself, and as he pants for the water, so I, my soul, longs to feed on you, to drink on you, to know you. Let me ask this morning, what does your soul pant after? If we're honest and we take a moment. Spend some time in your quiet time this afternoon, tomorrow morning, this week. What is it my soul pants after? What am I, where, where, where do I give my, you know, the, my thought resources and my other resources in my, my life? and What is it we pant after? Desire. Because it's not that our desires are too strong. We've just exchanged the glory of God for a pack of lies. But here it is. Here's what Jesus is talking about here. It's what he's talking about throughout the whole New Testament. It's what he's talking about in terms of religion and, and the saving of souls and people. Here it is, what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Earlier in the same chapter, it's in your bulletin there. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. First John 2.15, he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Right? And to love is to strongly desire and to, to live in such a way that those are the things we put as a priority. And we say to love somebody else is to, to put their interests above our own. And so he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Don't strongly desire to invest your resources both inner and outer into anything in the world. He says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot pant for God and for His kingdom and for His mission while siphoning our passion off into a thousand other endeavors. At the start, I said, lust betrays relationship and it defiles the soul. And I said also, though, it has the potential to separate us from God. And I believe unless we fight it, unless we, we fight it by fighting for you know, a pursuit of God in his word and, and in the core priorities of our lives, we will lose this battle. How do I know? Because Jesus resorts to hyperbole. When he goes in the, at the end of this passage and what he tags on here. Again, if he, didn't dro- if he dropped the A-bomb in verse 28, then what he goes on to in these hyperbole, and you and I have heard these so many times, we take them for granted. But just hear Jesus for the first time that he says, look, look, if, if, there, if your eye, in other words, think of what does that mean in terms of what you see and, and what's in the world, if anything in the world, if your eye is a problem for you, if it's causing you to sin, gouge it out of your head and throw it away. I know it's graphic but it's Jesus, right? He says, he, you know, he goes to hyperbole. If you're right hand, now, I don't know about you, I'm right-handed. And I think that's why he picks the right hand. There's hardly anything more dear to me. I can't write, I can't tie my shoes, I can't, I can't do hardly anything without two hands, but much less my dominant hand. And Jesus says, if your right hand, your dominant, dear right hand is the one causing you to sin, you should sever it from your body and throw it away. I mean, it should rock us back onto our backside to sit and say, Jesus says this is, you know, he begs to differ if this is a victimless crime. Jesus says you're the first victim. If this lives in your soul, you're the first victim. And you lie to yourself and you believe the lies that are out there if you think it isn't doing extreme damage to your relationship with God. And the way you dishonor others and disregard God in all of it. Jesus resorts to this hyperbole. Why? To shake us out of our complacency. Right? He's saying, look, purity of heart. This isn't, this isn't a side venture, right? You know, this isn't, this isn't something, you know, for the super spiritual. Jesus is saying, this is core religion. This is who you are in your heart of hearts. is who you are, my friends. Jesus and Paul says somewhere in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. The one who sows to the flesh of the flesh is going to reap destruction. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit is going to reap life. Let us press in and sow to the the Spirit. Let us hear. him. He's saying this is shockingly important. We must fight for the purity of our hearts in the things of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, I remember reading this years ago and wrestling with what this means. He says, it's on in your bulletin under the last point, in your struggle against sin. And this is, you need to know, this follows the whole chapter on faith. Everybody who lived by faith. And chapter 12 begins with, let us fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race that is before us. You know, this one who's run before us, and then that's verses 1 and 2. And as he gets to verse 4, he says, in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but understand that God disciplines those He loves, and He goes into that whole section, right? But do we hear again? There's this to the shedding of blood. I mean, he he seems to think that I'm fighting, I'm gouging and I'm cutting, I'm severing, I'm fighting, right? There's there's bloodshed. This is war, right? This means war when it comes to my soul and its purity, right? And we've not yet come to the shedding of blood as we resist. Sin, as he calls us to. What is he saying? He's saying, as Jesus says this, and as he's speaking to this crowd, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you this, we've not taken purity of heart seriously enough. This is war. And our souls are the battlefield. 1 Peter 2, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions, from lusts, which wage war. Against your soul. And the word is there, the same word Jesus uses here, the, 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 to abstain from those passions, those lusts that wage war against your soul. It is war. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. You got to go to war. And it's not a fight that we ever put down. Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ says we must get serious <clears throat> about the inside of the cup, right? We have to be serious. Every morning and every night and every day as we walk with God, he says you must be serious about the inside of the cup. Here's where it happens. Here's where worship happens. Here's where those decisions to give here and not there happen. Right? Here is the decision to pour out myself out like an offering on the sacrifice and service in the church of Christ and into the people around me. Here's where it happens. Here's where the battle is won or lost. Jesus says we have to be serious about the inside of the cup. Our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Guilt will not win this battle. Threats will not win this battle. Willpower will not win this battle. How do I know? I've tried. Guilt has driven me. The threats of hell have driven me. You know, the willpower tomorrow, I will not do this And by nightfall, I am praying Psalm 51. Only faith in Jesus Christ can win this battle. Let me give you three things. There's probably more, but let me just give you three things we have to believe. And then I would say this too. This is a series. should do a men's series in a small group or Sunday school where we fight this fight. And what does that look like? Uh, And women probably approaching from a slightly different angle. The same issues. Of what we lust after in our hearts. But let me give you three things we have to believe. And one is in the mercy of God. The second is in the victory of Christ. And the third is in the prize after which we are striving. Right? We have to believe in the mercy of God. Because I'll tell you this. When I fight this fight in every area of my life. And in all the different things that seek to control. I cannot serve two masters as I fight this fight. One thing that will suck the life out of your fight before anything else is the sneaking suspicion that God doesn't forgive you anymore or if you've done it one too many times. The sneaking suspicion that this fight is futile, that God doesn't love you, or something like that. In your bulletin there under this last point, First 1 John 1, seven, it says that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And If you do not start there, you will not start. If you don't start in the place of forgiveness, you cannot win this battle. You have to start at the foot of the cross. You have to start in faith in the blood of Christ. You have to get up every day and say his mercies are new every morning or I can't fight. The only the, the power to fight is the fact that God loves me and he fills me with his spirit and then he is on my side. I can't win this. You know, should the right man be on our side, our striving would be losing. And so we have to start with Jesus and to believe I have to be free to struggle, free to fail, free to know that the blood of Jesus covers my failure and my struggle. And my, but while I'm free to struggle and I'm free to fail, I am not free to live in filth. And I'm not free to not fight. He says fight. But start in mercy. You know, 1 Peter 2.16 there in your bulletin, live as people who are free Right? That's where we start. We must live as people who are free in Christ, but then hear Him. But not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, as an excuse to be impure, you know, as an excuse to not fight this battle, to not gouge and cut and sever as He says. Free and forgiven people who hate sin and love purity who labor for it. The second. Not only do we have to believe in the mercy. But we have to believe in the victory of Christ. You've got to believe this battle is not only winnable. But that it's already won. Right? That Christ has already fought this battle. And in Romans 8, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says that he who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion to the day of Christ. It is is God who will sanctify us through and through your whole spirit, soul, and body to be blameless on that day. God is faithful and God will do it. And it is his power and his grace alone that can make it happen. And so we hear Paul in Romans 6 saying... Sin shall not be your master. I remember reading that for the first time and and just putting my Bible down and walking around the room like, is that true? Is this true? Sin will not be my master. Is there freedom? Is there victory? Is there hope? Do not let sin reign. Believe in His mercy. Believe in His victory. And Believe in the prize. Understand what you're fighting for. You know, take Jesus' words and bear them every day. The pure in heart shall see God. Right? The prize is God. The prize is God himself. The prize is God giving himself to us. We have to know what we're fighting for. What it is that we give ourselves to. You know, I watched the movie, just let me close with this, The Cinderella Man. I watched it years ago and I still remember This, it's uh, uh, Russell Crowe and Renee Zellwinger, and and, uh, Russell Crowe plays this boxer uh, whose name is Jim Braddock. He was a boxer back during the Depression. He was a champion who, along the way, lost the will to fight, and he began to lose to the point where he couldn't win for losing and, and ended up out of the game, out of the sport. And then it says that things got really bad the movie shows how the depression deepened and there was no money and they couldn't keep the electricity on and the thing that takes a father's heart was that symbolically among others that there was no milk could not feed his children right there this was this was about their livelihood this was about feeding his children there it was life and death it was It was his wife and his children. It was health and stability. And so he went back into the only thing he could do, which was boxing. And he made an astounding comeback. And he rises back to the top where he is. He takes the championship and he's sitting at a table. And and all the reporters are there. And it's flashing. Here he is at the top again. And they say, you know, they're asking him questions. And they say, look, you were losing. You couldn't win for nothing. They're like, what changed? What are you fighting for? And his answer was, milk. Fighting for my life. Fighting for the ability to, for, it's life and death for me and for my family, and I fight with all that is in me. And he wins. The fight for purity is not an optional pastime. It's a life and death struggle of the soul, for the soul of the church, and our effectiveness in the world. Right? Paul, Paul says in uh, pastoral letters you know that he is, if we cleanse ourselves of everything that defiles we become instruments useful to the master instruments useful to the master we fight for purity of heart not as an optional pastime piper says there's a great error that says faith in god is one thing and a fight for holiness is another thing no they're not there is no faith it does not fight. right? Isn't that James' point? Where faith and works together. Right? Isn't it John's point? You say you love them and you see their need and you don't meet their need. How can the love of God be in you? you can't. There's no faith where there's no fight. There's no faith where there's no mercy. There's no faith where the, the, the presence and power of God is not seen at work in the transformation of the soul and the character, the pure in heart. See God. Piper says this about lust. It kills the spirit. It drives God away. It grieves the spirit. It depersonalizes people. It quenches prayer. It blanks out the Bible. It cheapens the soul. It destroys spiritual power. It defiles everything. It is not a victimless crime. Believe in his mercy and believe in his victory and believe in the prize and know what you're fighting for and then hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning as a people who are steeped in our culture. We come as a people who are bombarded day in and day out with the images and the call of the siren. God, would you tie us to the mast and bring us through this storm? Will you help us to fight the good fight of faith? Will you help us to not only wash our hands but to purify our hearts that we would not be double-minded? Would you help us to resist under the shedding of blood that is to fight with all that is in us? That you might be Lord in our hearts and that we might be fully yours. These things we ask and we pray in Jesus' name.